Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we bring you writer Ross Gay, author of The Book of Delights from April 2021, which was the culminating event of Everybody Reads. Every year, the Multnomah County Library chooses one book they hope the whole city will read. Between January and April, the library and their partner organizations host events based around the themes of the book, and they distribute thousands of free copies, thanks to the Library Foundation, to readers of all ages from across the county. Here at Literary Arts, Our role is to bring the author to town for a talk at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. This year, because of the public health restrictions, we brought Ross Gay here virtually, and he gave an incredible lecture and then engaged in a thoughtful, funny, and heartfelt conversation with Oregon's own Lydia Yuknovich. In his talk, Ross Gay takes us back to his hardscrabble childhood in Philadelphia and traces his coming-of-age story from newspaper boy to internationally recognized poet four collections of poetry, to author of the New York Times bestselling collection of essays, The Book of Delights. The Book of Delights contains essayettes, as Gay refers to them, written over one year, recording the small joys of life, nicknames, being called baby by a waitress, birds in the Detroit airport, writing by hand. And as he catalogs his delights, Gay does not avoid the harshness and unfairness that accompanies life in 21st century America. Racism, grief, climate disaster, and more. But Gay shows us it's possible to notice delight amid grief and upheaval, and how this delight connects us, not only to the world around us, but to each other. Here's Ross Gay. Hey, it's good to be with you. I'm, uh, I'm going to offer you all this talk, and it has this title that, um, title-ish, maybe we'll call it, and you'll know why I say title-ish. And it's this, digression in the form of an approximate and unfinished and unfinishable address to a young version of myself, and also to a young person who is interested in writing or something like that, who might also be a person, a version of someone who would pass through my friend Betsy's library and address as well to the adults who maybe come into contact with these children, addressing the question of how I have come to write books. Title-ish. Inasmuch as anything I remember is true or true-ish, I want to tell you something about the story of my becoming a writer, or I want to make an effort anyway in that general direction. You know the story, how I became a this or that. has a nice ring to it. Let me play it out for you. Let me lay it out for you. Let me make it plain. There is a straight line and I can draw it. I can plot the story which I often these days have occasion to do when I'm asked such things as how did you become a writer? And which I'm inclined these days to alert the asker, by which I really mean to alert myself, that there is some risk 
to repeating and thereby cementing one's stories as answers, as the answers like this, by which I mean the question, how did you become a writer is both plainly answerable in a sort of material way. I met so-and-so through so-and-so, and then this happened and then that, but it's also completely unanswerable. And that unanswerability, also known as the field of questions, is actually far more interesting to me. Though, let me first tell you what I often tell because it's also true. It's also a field of questions. And that is that I was a depressed student athlete. Football, there's a field at Lafayette College on the cusp of falling out, on the cusp of failing out. My head a little rattled, my body sore and pooped, wet with disappointment, lonely and despondent and doing mostly nothing in, I think, a survey of 20th century poetry class, probably drawing pictures in a notebook, which is not nothing. The professor, his name is David Johnson, had me give a presentation on the poet Amiri Baraka. One of the poems of the bunch that I presented on, you know, I'm realizing I recall nothing of the presentation, though I think it was probably the very first adequate presentation I gave in college. I recall plain as day giving an inadequate presentation and being so unprepared that the professor, bless his soul, asked me to sit down and then gave us, by which I mean me, an extended piece of his mind, which to this day makes me a little bit shudder and get queasy. And the poem was called An Agony, As Now. Here's the poem, An Agony, As Now. I'm inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes, smell what foul tunes come into his breath, love his wretched women, slits in the metal for sun. Where my eyes sit turning at the cool air, the glance of light or hard flesh rubbed against me, a woman, a man without shadow or voice or meaning. This is the enclosure, flesh where innocence is a weapon, an abstraction, touch, not mine or yours. If you are the soul I had and abandoned when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man, if he is beautiful or pitied, it can be pain as now as all his flesh hurts me. It can be that or pain as when she ran from me into that forest or pain the mind silver spiraled world against the sun higher than even old men thought god would be or pain and the other the yes inside his books his fingers they are withered yellow flowers and were never beautiful the yes you will lost soul say Beauty, beauty practiced as the tree, the slow river, a white sun in its wet sentences, or the cold men in their gale, ecstasy, flesh, or soul, the yes, their robes blown, their bowls empty. They chanted my heels, not yours. Flesh or soul as corrupt, where the answer moves too quickly where the God is a self after all. Cold air blown through narrow blind eyes, flesh 
white hot metal glows as the day with its sun. It is a human love I live inside, a bony skeleton you recognize as words or simple feeling, but it has no feeling. As the metal is hot, it is not given to love. It burns the thing inside it, and that thing screams. That's Amiri Baraka. It was, as I often tell it, almost like this. I read this poem along with a few others and thought, oh, whatever that is, whatever just happened to me, I want to make. I want to do that. As I tend to tell it, and this is true, this poem articulated for me a kind of alienation I was feeling. Alienation probably to do, at least in part, with money and race. I was around rich people for the first time in my life but for which I had no language. What I had was rage. I really wanted to do, what I really wanted to do was break stuff. And this poem, which remains to this day a deeply complex and sort of bottomless poem to me, maybe articulated some of those feelings, but maybe the accurate phrase is that the poem held what felt inarticulable about those feelings. Baraka's poem held and showed me the holding of what is not only mysterious, but felt perhaps beyond holding. I wouldn't have said any of this then, not even close. But something turned, it's true, and I started reading, and reading poems in particular, sort of ravenously, as I recall. I always carried around a copy of Translucency, Baraka's selected poems. Also in my satchel, Sylvia Plath and Mark Strand and June Jordan, Oh, I'm just remembering this, a book of the architect Lou Kahn's writings, introduced to me by my buddy Cootie, with whom I pilgrimaged to a number of Kahn's major works in Connecticut, Fort Worth, La Jolla, New Hampshire, and good old Philly. In the story that unspools like a line cast from a fishing pole, this is the moment. Something turned, and it did. This is in the field of significant moments. I was recently sitting in a field in a cemetery under a sycamore tree with some friends, one of whom told us that his father used to play John Coltrane's My Favorite Things every morning, like every single morning, which feels like a good way to bless the day. When I asked which version his dad played, because in addition to the studio version, there are plenty of live versions out there, some that go on so very long, they might still be going on as we speak. He reported that his father always played the one from the studio recording, the record. I think I can picture the cover, blue background, Coltrane with his soprano in a suit looking down. I just looked up the image. I was right, that's the one. I was picturing him looking a bit more straight down, less to his right, but you know, pretty close. Anyhow, when he said he only played the studio version, which is beautiful, a complete liberation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein song, <laughs> if it's Rodgers and Hammerstein, <laughs> which I just barely know I was doing that for effect. Though it's a safe bet my time on this earth will pass without me seeing that movie. Oh, too, I think Bjork's version from Dance in the Dark is also amazing, as is most of what Bjork does. I asked him if he had ever heard any of the live versions, which he had not. Well, if you know anything about a live Coltrane version, though maybe the knowing is actually of any Coltrane, though live is certainly more, which makes sense, 
given as the living itself is more and the dying itself is more. You know that digression is one of his modes. You know that he will go as far on a theme as the theme permits, and then some, until you completely forgot the song you were listening to. You forgot the catchy melody that reminds you of something, maybe some sweet or not so sweet family moment, maybe some holiday, this or that, maybe it's cranberry sauce or your grandparents' dog jester or your grandfather's aftershave until all of that gets left behind, far behind. And you are being reminded of almost nothing, or at least nothing you could recognize being reminded of. You are suddenly in a place. I guess it's a song you do not recognize and don't know how you got here or if you'll ever get out. And I think I probably first started to listening to Coltrane when I was about 13 or 14. I wonder if this is right. It could have been 15 or 16. It might have been the same friend Cootie who shared a tape. It was still tapes then. Maybe it was one of his brothers, or maybe I shared it with him. Sharing was involved. We can say that for sure. Could have been a logical progression backward in time from Branford Marsalis's record, Renaissance. Oh, do you know that song, The Peacocks? Wait, how did I come to Branford? Was it do the right thing? The more you get to know me, the more you will know I am what they call a melancholic, which conditions sometimes for some might occasion the writing of something like the Book of Delights, melancholic, etc. I mean. But I want to keep following this thread because at a certain point, coinciding, I think, with the emergence of my fathers and my struggles, I became very interested in my old man's record collection. The word is not obsessed, though that would make for a good origin story. It would be good on the terrible TV show. Son becomes obsessed with father's record collection at the same time son becomes unenamored of father. Listening, understanding, reconciliation, etc. That's not this story. I became very interested in some of the records in my father's record collection, which collection had, among, oh, 500 other records, a Japanese pressing of a Simon and Garfunkel double album, I think, that included the song Old Friends, which I loved. Told you I was melancholic. Good Lord. They sat on the park bench like bookends. A newspaper blew through the grass. Da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, quietly sharing the same fears. Good Lord. All the hits, too. Truth is, I was just on a YouTube jag of live Simon and Garfunkel the other day. But more, I wanted to tell you the three other records of my father's that I listened to over and over and over. The first is Al Jarreau's rendition of the Dave Brubeck song, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Now, I understand that among some people, you might tease someone a little bit by saying they were dressed like Al Jarreau. I suspect it might, in a certain era, have meant you were wearing pastels or loafers without socks or a well-fitting polo shirt, all of which, for a time, were profoundly out of vogue, all of which, for a time, were profoundly in Miami Vice. Anyway, say what you will about Jarreau's polo shirts. Dude could sing his ass off. To me, look, Full disclosure, I am not a Thoreau scholar. Nowhere more on display than in Blue Rondo a la Turk, the two minute or so solo of which I could sing to you right now. I mean, I could try singing it to you right now. There would be times where I'd be pointing at the notes like they were impossible birds high up in a tree, which is a kind of conducting, isn't it? A kind of 
conduction between my body and the birds, my body and Jero, my body as Jero and the birds. I can remember listening to this record as my mom and dad watched TV sort of over my shoulder. I'd be sitting in front of the record player following the lyrics. It's nearly a five minute song. And when it finished, I'd listen again. And when it finished, I'd listen again, and then again, and then again. And one time when they were watching TV, as I was hunkered down in front of the record player, following along, probably listening to one song over and over, I heard my dad say through those headphones to my mother, well, at least he's reading something. Which is, I think, as good a place as any to tell you, I didn't like to read very much after a certain age, more or less after Clifford and Frog and Toad in them. Oh, I guess those choose your own adventure books were fun for a spell, but for the most part, by the time I was 12 or so, I mostly lost the taste. I think the late stages of my early reading life were late Power Man and Iron Fist. I would mainly procure them at I-95 Marketplace, where there was a comic book shop across the way from the arcade and Chinese spot. Anyhow, it was just after this time that, as I often put it, jokingly, I got dumb, by which I actually mean I ceased being interested in school, classes and lessons and such. I became, in classes not gym anyway, by all accounts, including my report cards, a distracted goofball. I set no fires and poisoned no fish. I was just profoundly disinterested in class. Though the older I get, the longer I teach, the more I think, oh, the ways you were disinterested your particular distracted goofballery was itself a kind of interest. One of my main trouble buddies was and is a kid named Jay. And one of our favorite dorky ass naughtinesses happened in Mr. Smith's history class, during which Jay sat directly behind me. Jay and I would consult in secret. As I recall, we sat in the front two or three rows of the class, so it wasn't that much of a secret. Um, and he was sitting, when Jay was sitting behind me, he would kind of lower his head and ask a question. The question might be, where was the first capital of the United States or something? Good chance it was something not pertaining to the class's course of study. But I would be the one with my hand raised and I'd mouth the words. It's called lip syncing. And there was a duo named Millie Vanilli who I think had to give up a Grammy because of it. We were so good at it that Mr. Smith just looked at me confusedly, kind of tilting his head like a dog before hesitatingly answering the question. One of the great delights of this particular shenanigan was when one of us got the giggles and had to call the sham off, telling Mr. Smith, never mind, never mind, trying not to explode with laughter, which is, you know this, one of the delights, being with beloveds, trying not to explode with laughter when it's inappropriate to explode with laughter, one of the true delights. Or also in eighth grade, same friend, who was my main collaborator in naughtiness. We got suspended for this or that. We filled the hall with fruit flies. We fudged our way into the Bucks County Courier Times. We fudged onto the dating story. We couldn't stop. Why would we do homework? We decided during journal, journal time in Mr. Epting's English class that it would be a good idea if we exchanged journals and drew racist pictures of each other, Jay's Chinese-American. They were, as I recall, sophisticated and quite beautiful and offensive renderings of each other. 
portraits really, of the only two students of color in that class. You can imagine it. We were 13. I'm so proud. They were such an obvious end from this vantage, moving project of intimacy, of regard, a kind of mutual shielding from the f we knew people probably were thinking about us. After all, we were both non-white survivors of Levittown. The cartoons were, among other things, a way of saying, I'm with you. I don't know if we would have said it like that, but that's what we were doing. When Mr. Epstein found our literary efforts, he asked us to stay after class. He wanted to talk to us, he said. Why was he looking at our journals? You can imagine his discomfort, this white man having, no, having to confront these two non-white children making this offensive and racist about each other, for each other, in the deepest throes of friendship. As I recall, Epstein was a loud man, pinkish, sturdy in a big Norse peasant kind of way, voice halfway between a brick and sandpaper, voice a brick wrapped in sandpaper. He got kind of quiet and small, wedging himself into a desk next to us to ask in an, I don't think this is okay kind of way, what we were doing. When we started laughing maniacally, almost falling from our seats, his face becomes, became some mixture of bafflement and disapproval and disgust. Oh, also some embarrassment that he had seen something that he maybe should not have, his face turning red as a geranium that finally became the smirk of someone who is in, who is in way over his head as we stumbled out of the room lying our sorries and won't happen again. None of which anyone alerted me was practice for making poems, making art or writing essays, thank God, yuck, I might've said, ew, I might've said, none of which anyone was thinking of as anything other than being common goofballs or uncommon goofballs, maybe. Me too. Morons might've been someone else's word until I didn't. And I started thinking from this perspective in my forties, wait a sec, you weren't doing nothing. You were doing theater. You weren't doing nothing. You were making collaborative drawings. You weren't doing nothing. You were making installations. You weren't doing nothing. You were practicing, even if they called it goofing off or being distracted or not paying attention or being disobedient or wasting time or failing. You were figuring out how to make something, even if you or you two or used to were the only ones listening. Also this, the blue dog. I would never in a million years not place that in the field. How could I, how could I not? It's a small story, a quick story, though it feels big. Somehow a dog came into our care when we were children, a small dog, maybe a puppy who, as I remember it, just arrived in our lives. When I say our, I mean the kids in the neighborhood, but especially Mike, Maurice, my brother and me. Maybe Joey was involved, but I don't remember. A magical thing about our big apartment complex. Of course, I didn't think this as a child. I didn't know to think it as a child. Is that there are within the complex discrete regions, especially to a child. So that the kids who lived up near the school were a people. And those who lived up front, the same. And those near the woods, the same. If ours was a region, 
it was near the playground, which also meant near the highway. All to say that it wasn't until we were older that we became friendly with kids in other regions of the apartments. We didn't even know them. For your imagination, one loop around the whole thing is 0.8 miles, as I knew well when training for a marathon and visiting my folks. A small place that was to us a world. And so our main cohort, cohort was we four or five. Mike and Maurice lived in 272 and 273, and we were 309. Joey was 333, I think. 334 was another mat, but pretty sure he'd moved by the time the dog arrived. He could have been found down the woods or wandered up along I-95, could have been sniffing around the brown house, the maintenance shed that was to us like a castle, and where a little girl, older than us though, but a big kid to us, I guess, a big kid actually, who was a little kid, had to run away. Not a chance in hell any of our parents was gonna risk their lease by bringing the dog in, even though it was cold. I remember our breath was around us in clouds as we all leaned in to pet the dog, whose name I forget, but let's say Grace. I doubt we even asked. And so we made a little house of a cardboard box filled up with a smuggled wool blanket. Not ours, we'd be killed. Probably Mike, his mom was different that way. And we tucked the dog's house between the bushes in front of Mike and Maurice's, 272 and 273. I still have their phone numbers in my head, 752-8319, 757-1652. We would crawl in there and sit with Grace, who would come to the front of the box and visit with us. I remember petting the pup's tummy one day and noticing when the fur parted, I saw the dog's flesh was a luminous, almost cerulean blue. I ran my fingers over his whole body and his whole body was lit like that. When I remembered this to my brother, he recalled Grace, but not Grace the Blue. And maybe more obvious though, he does remember this, my brother sitting with me, who was sitting in front of him, my back leaning into his chest, my elbows probably on his little rubbery legs, reading Danny the Dinosaur to me. My brother was, is, he is that brother. He was probably going slow and running his fingers along the words like someone, probably my mom or dad, showed him how. Until I started mouthing the words and then saying them out loud with my brother, which I don't recall surprising my brother, though my mother thought we were tricking her. But to me, it felt like learning to ride a bike. It felt like flying. It felt like when I was little and could remember when I could breathe underwater. Or this, my old man convincing us that we oughtn't push the wiper fluid button in the brown Toyota Corolla, the button that had a little graphic on it that, yep, looked like a flower. Because if we did push that button, the Corolla would turn into a flower and a big bee would come and sting us, which is in the cosmos, as far as I'm concerned, with his big head joke, summary of which is this. Mommy, mommy, all the kids at school are teasing me, calling me big head. Oh, they don't mean it. Come here, honey. Wipe your eyes. Blow your nose. <laughs> that joke really works on little kids. <laughs> or my mother, whose inclination and humor is the hyperbolic, and who gifted that mode unto my brother and me. If we are together and we describe a silly event, truth is, sometimes this comes at my mother's delighted expense. Often, I mean, 
if we're talking about when she made me watch The Exorcist, for instance, or when she got fed up with us fighting in the, in the kitchen and whacked us with the same spoon with which she was stirring the oatmeal cookie batter, a glob of goop stuck in both me and Maddie's hair. The malfeasance will grow and grow and grow until my mother can barely, can barely breathe with laughter. She taught us that. Or the raspberry bushes lining the fields near the school, Hoover, we called it. It was for a time a chiropractic school. And so when we snuck in, did we break in? We were often wondering where the bodies were. Every year I waited on those berries and come June, I would often take a quick detour from the trails, the dirt bike course we built in the woods between the apartments in Humeville, where my brother ripped a big hole in his leg once, to scour the brambles, to see how they were coming. And when they came, I don't think I am fibbing to say it was hours some days I spent with the raspberries. And I know it's not a fib to say that they were wild and so thorny, and there sometimes would be blood fine price to pay for some sweetness, I guess. And you know, I'm just remembering this. We used to haul a card table to the front of the apartments and set out for sale the stuff we owned but no longer wanted. We were pipsqueaks, so what was this stuff is my question. And people, adults, would pull over on Trenton Road and sometimes buy that stuff. Maybe non-Power Man and Iron Fist comic books? Was it a comic book shop? Was it the first iteration of the bookshop of my dreams? Also this in those apartments. My brother and I were paper boys for most of our childhoods, beginning at about seven for me and nine for my brother. And so every day we would set our alarm and walk up to the front of the apartments where they dropped the bundles of papers, stick them in our bags as the week went on, the papers got heavier and head out. Daily labor in the dark in a kind of solitude or near solitude. Sometimes we'd be a little extra poop that morning and so would fall asleep, huddled together at the front of the apartments on our stacks of papers. The birds sound different in the dark, in the dark rolling into light. And come spring, you might turn the corner and be washed in the new honeysuckle. How quiet it was sometimes. Wait, did I mention dancing? How could I blow over this? How we spent hours and hours and hours studying and imitating the dance moves of, among others, Bobby Brown, Heavy D and the Boys, Kid and Play, Troop, New Edition, Salt and Pepper, and on and on and on and on and on. That we hung out on the curb at night with a boom box and danced and studied each other and taught each other moves and choreographed extended sequences. And also at this time on the curb, this is me and Jim mostly, as I recall, singing Motown, my girl and such, or melancholy me, Papa was a Rolling Stone, which neither of our Papas were. Also, my mother's annual basket of impatience, the way she actually coos when seeing something that flummoxes her with beauty, a doe or a garden. She becomes a child, she becomes a garden. My dad's singing voice, his persistence in dreams. He will not leave me alone. We are changing as we speak. And that I shared a bed with my brother until I was about 12 or 13. All the languages. I didn't even talk skateboarding, it was deep. 
I didn't even talk about the salamanders and tadpoles in the mucky creek or the refrigerators. I didn't talk the culvert beneath I-95 that we went through, length of a football field. Didn't talk about who didn't make it. Didn't talk about being in Youngstown, being in Verndale. Didn't talk about Burger King. Burger King? Burger King. Didn't talk about raking leaves on that lady's hill and the delicious grilled cheese she made or the rope swing or the tree house or Stanley almost drowning or the stupid or the grapevine made a house in the woods crawling up into the canopy and us sitting there on a vine thick as our dad's arm plucking grapes. Or those other two records of my dad's, Mingus's solo piano, especially the first song, Myself When I Am Real, and Dizzy's Swing Low Sweet Cadillac, especially the song Kush, over and over and over and over. Maybe the Impulse label brought me to Coltrane. Oh God, Charlie Brown. Oh God, The Wiz. I see what I'm getting to. I see. I see what I'm saying. That nothing is not the story of one's becoming, which incidentally, we're always in the midst of. And by nothing, I really mean nothing, which means I think I have this right. I offer it to you for your consideration that we too are all of us in the field of each other's becoming, that we are the field of each other's becoming. Let me add that to my field of questions. Thank you. I could not be more thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. There's literally no one else on the planet I would rather be in conversation with right now, given what the world is, than Ross Gay. And so first, I just want to express gratitude and love that I'm on the planet when you're on the planet, my brother from another mother. <laughs> so, um, Thank you. Same, same. So glad to be talking with you. So, so glad you made the time. Yeah, such a gift. First, from the get-go in the piece you narrated, the title, and then yeah. everything, every place the story goes, marked by certain signposts that say, here's another place where yeah. there will be a digression. Can you talk a little bit about the beauty and the art and the meaning of digression for you as a writer. Uh, for me, it's the heart of the matter because mm -hmm. nothing that has mattered in my life happens in the to the point linear, make the argument, get it clear way. Yeah. So I identify with it. Can you talk a little about the art and the beauty of digression? Yeah, you know, I have, um, or I had teachers, um, one in particular named Gerald Stern, who was just such a good storyteller. And like he would, you'd ask a question or maybe you'd think he was talking about your poem and then it's gone. And he's in Pittsburgh <laughs> in 1946. And it's like, he's walking down the street and, he, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just was, I loved that. And I loved it. I loved it actually as a pedagogy. It was like storytelling as a pedagogy. And at some point it would probably like come back to what your poem was about in some way. And, and if not, it gave you the opportunity to sort of practice your metaphor by being like, okay, I think that had to do with, <laughs> you know, you had to tie it together. But, um, so I do want to sort of point to, to Jerry as like a, as someone who 
in his writing, but also in his sort of life is so beautifully sort of digressive. But I've been trying to think about like, what would, what would be like a mycelial form? The way that I understand the sort of myceliality or the, the fungal, you know, business in the forest and a healthy forest is that it's constantly sort of shelling nutrients. So there's a constant cycling and uh, communication of, of information and nutrients. Right. And in a way, it feels like the best conversation. And, you know, like a forest like that, a healthy forest is like the best conversation. And to me, right. the best conversation is not centered around an individual. It's like it, it's moving around and it's moving through um, all these sort of different um, experiences or, or views or visions or whatever. And so I kind of feel like um, this is this is re a kind of a recent wonder, curiosity to me. Like when I'm writing in ways that feel really interesting, I'm having conversations with a lot of people in my head, you know? And so when a lot of those people, like it can kind of move around, zip around, then it can feel like um, that's a kind of digressive, that's a kind of conversation that's happening inside of, you know, inside of my head. And it might come back to the thing that it digressed from, or it might leave it entirely and let it just kind of hang there. But I am lately feeling about digress digression. I am wondering about digression and the mycelial, actually. <laughs> I'll say it like that. I mean, I mean, dude, I am so into the mushroom reality right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or any any root systems that move rhizomically. Um, I'm completely obsessed. And I even I know everyone's complaining about internetical life and zoom life and mm -hmm. um, being in the digital space because it's so terrible and everything and it's true it's a cesspool it's terrible it's awful um, <laughs> except if i start thinking about things like root systems and mycelium and how it's yeah. given us a visual mm. reality for our rhizomic possible connections yeah. And if we let it, yeah. it could be fascinating in that way. So I'm with you, Shroomer from way back. <laughs> <laughs> All about the mycelium. Yes. In the in the story you told, you talked about being a depressed student athlete, mm. and I was a depressed student athlete too. I know you were. Yeah. Um, I know you. Basketball and football swimmer, although it gave me a place to be in my body, uh, but the depression happened in the socius in the world and my not fitting like you were talking about before. Now we're older humans mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're meeting the youth culture, you know, the youth that we were and a lot of people in their youth in high school and early college are experiencing the sort of depressed athlete or artist or whatever they are yeah. and that space could be understood as another place of becoming it mm -hmm. could be understood as you know in your storytelling that you weren't doing nothing you yeah. were doing something with your lip syncing and yeah. your yeah. drawings of each other and so maybe we could talk a little bit as both the depressed athletes we were, but also as teachers mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. about that space and how it might not be nothing. Yeah. You know, there's a show, I haven't watched the whole show uh, or anything, but 
and it's about it's about sports. It's about uh, it's called like Last Chance You or something. I can't remember. Um, I don't. I and I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen it's the basketball version. There might be a football version, but a couple of people were like, "Oh, you got to watch this show." So I um, watched a couple, and there's this one kid, you know, and he's you know he's like 22 years old or whatever, and he was a, a, all this and all that as a kid, and then he has a couple injuries, and he goes down a little. He struggles a little bit. And they have him on there saying a few times, like, he doesn't, he might not say exactly, I ruined my life, but he says things along the lines of, I ruined my life. And I just want to be like, yeah, child, yeah, you yeah, are yeah. 22 years old. Like, you are 22 years old, man. Like, um, you didn't ruin anything. You didn't ruin anything. And I mean, you know, I've been writing a lot about basketball actually lately. And, and one thing that I'm um, kind of becoming more and more aware of is the, the ways that, you know, my sort of, and I know you can relate to this, that sort of um, the kinds of um, common daily um, brutalities that we often sort of endure or, or if we coach and we have, if we coach and we haven't worked through some stuff, we impose on other people about competition and about like, you know, being something that you're not and about you know, like all of this sort of, um, brutalizing the body and brutalizing the self towards something that maybe you don't even care about, maybe you don't even believe in. And maybe in a way like, you know, when I think of myself playing college football and just, you know, some of the stuff you're just kind of in the presence of and around. And and if you are a scholarship student like I was, and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to get be able to go to school otherwise, you know, and and I'm like, my brain hurts, you know, my brain hurts. Like I'm all, you know, just these things. That's one thing I've been thinking a lot a lot about, but also the the sort of when you asked about like being sort of depressed or yeah. Um, yeah. whatever the many things I had, I had no language, frankly, I had no language for that. I didn't, and I didn't really come from people who had language for that. Um, I know what you mean. I mean, the first place yeah. I found any kind of language was uh, drawing, which is why the story of you and Jay trying <laughs> was yeah. meaningful to me because uh, it was a language. It was, I didn't know it at the time, but it was yeah. trying to develop a language. And one of the questions from the audience folk just wants to know what your like literal writing process is like, like on the daily or the weekly or the mm -hmm. monthly or however it happens for you. Yeah. You know, when I wrote the book of delights in the, in the prologue or preface, there's a little thing that, explains how I did it. And it was basically, I, I wrote an essay every day for a year um, about something that delighted me. That, that's sort of the premise. And it took, I spent 30 minutes yeah. a day. I wrote them by hand. Um, but that's an unusual thing for me. I don't really um, normally write like that. No, normally I get obsessed and I, that's all I'm trying to do. And then I sort of, you know, whatever it, it gets quiet and I'm reading and I'm, uh, I mean, I'm always kind of reading. Um, and, but I was just like, for instance, I was just at a um, McDowell, which is a writing residency uh, for folks out there. Yeah. Um, and I would wake up and it was very quiet. It was so quiet. Um, and voices were like, there was a lot of good voices with me and I would get very quiet and I would, um, wake up in the morning, have some coffee, read John Edgar Wideman or Wayne Kestenbaum these days. Um, and then I would 
boom, right, nonstop for a while. And it was like that, it was just on. And then I came home and it slowed down. And, you know, now it's like doing something else. And, um, but so my way is it's not real methodical. It's sort of like time and energy, it goes fast and hard. And then other things come in the way. And then it's a little bit of a, I don't know what you call it, like a resting or, or preparing or something. How do you, how do you do it? What's your, do you have a process? I've let go of the primary anxiety that there's any way I should or shouldn't be writing. Uh, because at this age, I've noticed it changes every decade or so, if not more often, that the rhythm of writing is what to find for each moment. Yeah. And whatever that rhythm is, is the way. And then the next thing you try to write or the next part of your life, that rhythm falls away entirely and screws you. (laughs) So you have to just keep finding the new rhythm, like with music or, or improv or, um, painting, you have to just look for the new rhythms and quit worrying about how you should or shouldn't be doing it or even what worked last time, because it will never work twice. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I love that way of thinking it. I think that's, that's I think that's what I would say is kind of my thing. I'm looking for the rhythm, find the rhythm. The rhythm is going to emerge and it's going to change. And so in a way, yeah, like trying to find the rhythm and just be with it until it changes, you know. Yeah. How different do you think the Book of the Delights would be if you'd written it in 2020? Mm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. Like when I reread that book, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, like when I started giving on, when they changed to like the online readings became a thing. And I, so I was rereading the book. I noticed how much um, touch, touch is constant in the book, you know, and um, yeah, travel, touch and travel are kind of constant in the book. So I think that it would probably have a little bit or a significantly more, um, you know, the, it'd be like smaller, the, it would be smaller, you know, but it would still be full. It would be still be totally full. You know, that's the thing. Um, it would still have happened, you know. That's amazing to think about touch in the last year or two. Although I want to remind Americans in particular that countries all over the world uh, experiencing war zones or, you know, refugee, they go without touch for much longer than we could possibly imagine. But it's been interesting culturally uh this idea of what is touch where is it gone and how would we how do we even talk about it yeah that's on my mind a lot um so you know when you get to that end space in your story this idea that you weren't doing nothing when people told you were doing nothing or you know like the worth or value of the weird things you did. I mean, I'm a, I flunked out of college more than once. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> funny, isn't it? Um, and you know, I'd had my crossroads with the law and mm-hmm. you know, just I've messed up a lot and been told you did it wrong. You broke the law, you broke the rule. And, and it's continued every decade of my life. But this idea that, the thing you were doing off in your corner in your weirdness 
is not nothing. You arrive at that at the end of your story in such a beautiful way. I bawled. Mm. I just want you to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, listening to you. And you say, nothing is not the story of one's becoming. We are all of us in the field of each other's becoming. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the field of each other's becoming for the range of people who might be listening right now? Yeah, I feel like, um, I feel like, I mean, even part of that, trying to imagine that story, the line of like how one becomes a writer, um, as I was, as I was doing it, I was like, you know, every encounter I had, I can't say didn't contribute to the way that I imagine that the way that I sort of see things or the way that I, um, imagine metaphor or the way that I talk or the way that I relate to language. And I mean, every single thing I feel like, and, and, and when I say every single thing, I mean, things that I could never in a, in a million years know were happening in my sort of circumference. Um, right. I feel like contributed, you know, to the making of, of this, this expression of, of this. And I think it's a really interesting, um, thing to think about partly because there's a lot of language and a lot of belief about the, not only like the individual, but you know, like, the, like genius and the, and the discrete achievement. I mean, school is really a kind of. It's just about like distinguishing yourself from others. You know, it's about being verified as achieving and achievable. And it, and it imagines oneself as not profoundly connected to others. You know, that achievement implies also leaving behind. And I think this idea, like the idea of we are in the field of becoming and the field of each other's becoming to me is like, it's this practice that I'm interested in, which is that you know, so we're in the field of each other's becoming because we're talking, but what does it mean if I'm in the field of someone's becoming, you know, who I just don't know and never will know? Like, how do I live in the world? You know, how do I be is, if we know that to be true, you know, if we know that to be true, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of information that would suggest that we are not actually in the field of each other's becoming. There's more than one person that wants to know, and this might be our last question um, before I drive with Andy and my son to your house to hang out come with on, you. Come on, come <laughs> on. <laughs> what what's a recent delight for you? Mm. Um, I mean, so one thing is that, and it's so weird, I can't, I don't know the name of this bush, but one of the early bushes around here, um, I'm on campus at Indiana University in Bloomington. One of the early bushes around here, it is so fragrant. I'm like a, I'm like a scent person, you know, and um, <laughs> I'm partly a scent person because I couldn't smell real good when I was a kid. And then I broke my nose playing basketball and then suddenly I can like, smell real good. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm just running. Like I'll be in the drugstore sometimes, like the, the CVS just smelling like the shampoo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, there's a bush here and I, and I don't know the name of it, you know, but it's kind of like a, it's, you know, they, they trim it like a, you know, kind of a hip high bush and it has these beautiful sort of trumpet flowers, clusters of trumpet flowers. It's not a lilac, but it looks it, a little bit like a lilac and it smells a little bit like a lilac. It is as good a smell on this planet as there is on this planet. And I was riding my bike by the day and I was like, whoa, 
they're here. <laughs> they're here. So that's one delight. That's beautiful. It has been <laughs> such a pleasure and joy to um, talk to you. I feel so lucky yeah. I got to do this with you. And um, I cannot Same. wait for the day when I get to cross your paths again. And I hope yeah. everyone here has been moved toward your work so that they'll mm -hmm. continue to go find it and inhabit it. Uh, it's changed my life and I, I can't stop thanking you. I feel lucky to be on the planet writing when you're writing. I feel the same way. Thank you so much, Lydia. That was Everybody Reads author Ross Gay in conversation with writer Lydia Yuknovich from April 2021. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.